The title to our series this month, though, is Good Work. But depending on how the last few days have gone, depending on the last project you, project you picked up, right, each new day can cause us to wonder, is work really good? Could it be good? Am I excited to get to this time tomorrow morning to enter into whatever God has prepared Monday to Friday? Or do I find myself, when I'm at work, longing for it to be over, longing for it to be past, dreaming about the weekend, perhaps? And if we have our hesitations about whether work really possesses the the goodness and the, the sanctity we talked about two weeks ago, Well, we had last week's study of Genesis 3 to to add to our reservations. Because there in the story of Adam and Eve, we see how the allure of becoming like gods to ourselves in our work ushered sin into the, the back door of human existence. In Genesis 3, we see how our spiritual ancestors exchanged the the partnership God had invited them into there in the garden and were instead left with the shame of their rebellion and the isolation that that produced. And, And the net result is that at the end of Genesis 3, Adam and Eve are actually ushered out of Eden. And they they hear from the Lord how work has become cursed. It's come under the power of sin. And that work has become hard as a result. And we see that for a very long time, that, that same problem, that same pattern has followed us. It shows up in the work we put our hands to as well. Right? So often in our lives that the place of our worship and the place of our work feel split apart and divided. Work feels exaggerated in its burden, in its challenge. Worship shrunk to to just a tiny corner of who we are and how we live. But thankfully, the the scriptures do not end in Genesis 3. And and the arc of of where scripture takes us teaches us to, to take our hope, even our frustration and our groaning and our longing under this burden of sin and to look further on, to look further in to the promises of God. God's Spirit invites us to know that there is a day in which work may be redeemed. It may be made new. So this morning I want us to consider what that redemption might look like. After last week, I had a few questions that were sort of floating around in my head, and maybe they're questions that you have about your work, things you've been thinking about this month as well. The first is this. After Genesis 3, if if work is hard, if it's by the sweat of our brow we work, if there are thorns and thistles in it, well, after that point in the scriptures, is there any good news for us about work in the Bible? The second question is, if there is good news, well, is it possible in some way that my work, the things I do day in and day out, could participate in God's mission, in God's kingdom? Is it it possible that my work can be brought back together with my worship? And then thirdly, 
a question I feel like I, I often reflect on in the day today is will the work that I do now have a lasting impact? Does it really matter in the grand scheme of things? Is there a way in which the work I do now can be enduring, even eternal in some sense? So I want to pray for us here in just a second as we open up the Word of God. And we're going to look in a few different places. We'll be looking in Luke's Gospel. We'll be looking in the prophet Isaiah and even in the Apostle Paul's writing in 1 Corinthians. But as we do that, let me, let me pray for us. Jesus, we thank you that you are the fullness of life. You are the fullness of all that God has promised. Jesus, you possess the power to redeem and to restore and to make new. Jesus, we thank you that You have done good work. You are doing good work. You are calling us to be in you. So that who we are and the things we do may be established by your spirit, by your hands. Lord, I pray now as I teach, may the words of my mouth, may the meditations of our hearts, and may the work that we do as a result be pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 4, verse 16, if you have your Bibles with you this morning. This is near the the very early portion of Jesus' public ministry. Luke 4, chapter, chapter 4, verse 16. It says, Jesus went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue... As was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, and recovery of sight for the blind. To set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then Jesus rolled up the scroll, he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. Then uh, then the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. I often forget when I read the Gospels that Jesus was a fully human person. Fully God, but also fully human. And that means he he walked in the same challenges. He faced the same kind of conundrums that you and I face every day. Jesus was born into the same world in which we now live. He was born with the same kind of human body that you and I share. And he was also born under the curse of Genesis 3, right? He enters into our humanity. And so that means that the work that Jesus did was also work that that followed under that curse, right? It was difficult. Whether he set his hand to work as a carpenter, whether it was his work as a rabbi in the synagogue, whether it was the work he did with his friends, 
catching fish. Right? It was done by the sweat of his brow, just like you and I. And if we were wondering whether, whether Jesus faced the same difficulties, the same even temptations that Adam and Eve faced back in Genesis, well, right before this passage in Luke 4, we see Jesus being tempted in very nearly the same way as Adam and Eve once were. Only Jesus is not tempted in a beautiful garden like Eden. Instead, he is taken to the desolation of the Judean wilderness. And there he encounters the devil. Right? And, and the devil makes several appeals to Jesus. Right? Turn these stones into bread. Make yourself extravagant and glorious in the eyes of the public. Right? Put the Lord to the test. Jesus is, is tempted to separate himself from God the Father in these temptations. But instead of, of eating of the forbidden fruit that the devil offers him, instead of falling into the same trap that Adam and Eve do, Jesus instead faithfully fasts for those 40 days. He depends upon his intimacy, his connection with his Father in heaven. And we're told by Luke that after 40 days there in the wilderness, 40 days of tempting and fasting, Jesus comes back to Galilee full of the power of the Holy Spirit. And Luke says that it is then in the fullness of that Spirit, in the faithfulness of God's Spirit, that Jesus enters this synagogue in Nazareth. And he's handed the scroll from Isaiah that morning. Jesus unrolls it, and he begins to read a passage that was etched deep into the hopes of God's people. Isaiah chapter 61. Right, the promise of a new age, a messianic age, which would come. Jesus says this in the synagogue. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim good news to the poor, freedom for the prisoners, to open blind eyes, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus, having come fresh from his battle with the devil, Jesus rolls open this scroll, he reads it aloud, and then Isaiah says, uh, sorry, Luke says, he sits down in the place of teaching. Right? In, in the synagogue, you would sit and begin to expound the word of God. And the first words out of Jesus' lips are, Today, this scripture is fulfilled. Today, those who were in exile from God, today, those who were blinded by false and idolatrous worship, today, those who are weary and heavy laden under the effects of the fall, the, the burden of our sin, Jesus says, today, let them hear the Lord's favor. And if you and I were looking for good news that follows Genesis 3, this is it. Because as Jesus begins this, this first message in the synagogue in Nazareth, he tells us that the curse in Genesis 3 has now met its match. Right? It's going to be overturned. It's going to be reversed in him. It's fulfilled in him. 
Now, interestingly enough, Luke doesn't tell us the rest of what Jesus taught. He says Jesus sat down and he began by saying, today this this passage is fulfilled. But I wonder if Jesus didn't at least spend part of his time that morning expounding the rest of Isaiah 61. Unpacking the vision that the prophet has there for the Messiah and his ministry. And the interesting thing is this. Isaiah 61 begins with with heralding the messianic age. that The Messiah would come. He would begin to make all things new. He would proclaim the Lord's favor. But it goes on to describe how the Messiah would call God's people into that work of redemption. He wasn't going to do it alone, single-handedly. He was going to redeem us and set us to the work that he had prepared. Jesus comes as the Messiah appointed to redeem the possibility and the power of good work. Work that the Lord's hand has prepared. I want to look at the next handful of verses, part of verse 3 and following in Isaiah 61. These are just after the words Jesus reads there in the synagogue. It says, Those who were once grieved will instead be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for his display of splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins. They will restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Strangers will shepherd your flocks. Foreigners will work your fields and your vineyards. And you will be called priests of the Lord. You will be named ministers of our God. question that that I have as I I think about these verses in this passage is that, that if Jesus is saying he truly has the power to undo the curse that happened way back in the garden, then what I want to know is, is it possible for my life to to be lifted out of that curse? Is it possible that the work I do could participate in this redeemed reality Jesus describes? When I show up at work tomorrow at at 8 or 9 a.m., when I drive a carload of tired kids around, if you have to fix some bit of software code, if you're visiting your grandchildren, if you're caring for a neighbor who's sick, if you're cooking dinner for your spouse, does that actually figure somehow in what it means to be a disciple of Jesus? What do, we, what do we honestly think most of the time? Do we connect those things with the redemptive work, the kingdom work of God? What I think these verses tell us, though, is that God has chosen all of those things, all the work of our hands, to be part of his work. Look at these verses. Verse 3, it says that God is taking all the places that were broken, all the places of grief and mourning and heaviness. And through the life of Messiah, through the life of Jesus in us, he causes favor to grow in those, those broken places. As our lives become joined to Jesus Christ, 
God plants us in offices. He plants us in classrooms. He plants us in farm fields or in families to be these oaks of righteousness, Isaiah says. Right? People who are planted in Jesus and, and we then display his splendor as, as his power grows up through us. Verse 4. Verse 4 says that Jesus will even send us into places long devastated. To ancient ruins. Right? Whether that's, that's villages and towns or cities or individual persons' lives that, that have been ruined by the fall, where true worship has all but disappeared from their life. And this prophecy says that as we live in those places as God's people, right, they might be rebuilt, they might be renewed with the hope in the glory of who our God is. It goes on and it says in verse 5 that when we become a people who are attached to Jesus Christ, when our lives, when our work, when our vision is drawn from his vision and his life, verse 5 says people cannot but help be attracted to that life. If we we are abiding in him, if the work we do is, is the work of his hands through us, then little by little peoples, the nations of the earth, will see the kindness and favor of God in you, extended outward to them. The vision Isaiah has here is that that the nations will want to come and work alongside us. They will join themselves to God's people because they want to taste of the goodness of the God they see imaged in you and I. That's an incredible vision. Pastor Tim Keller tells a story that in many ways describes this very reality. He said that many years ago, as his church in Manhattan was just beginning, he met a young woman who had recently started coming to their church and was exploring Christianity for the first time. And after a service one morning, he he had a a conversation with her, and he said, how is it that you ended up here? How is it that you, you sort of started asking these questions? And she said that some months before that, she had taken a new job. She'd moved her life to Manhattan. And in the first few months in that position, she had made a major blunder in her work. And she was sure that that mistake was going to cost her her position. But before those consequences came, her boss went to his superior, and he took full responsibility for what had taken place. And it cost him some of his own social capital, right, within that organization. And after that took place, she came in and spoke to this individual, and she was was amazed, she was surprised, and she said, why did you do that? Why would would you take responsibility for for the thing that I I didn't complete? And he told her, well, I'm a Christian, That's, that's part of why I did this. And that means, among other things, that God accepts me because Jesus took the blame for the things I have done, for the things I've left undone, right? for the things I could not do. And that is why I have the desire and sometimes the ability to take the blame for others. And as Keller tells the story, he says that the woman stared at her colleague for a moment 
And then she said, where do you go to church? <laughs> she was curious, right? Who, who does this? Who, who lives in this way? It's people with a redeemed vision of who we are, who have been redeemed by Jesus. And that individual exchange, right, was far more redemptive than any sermon she could have heard about redemption. Any message preached from the pulpit, right, it was incarnate, it was lived in front of her. And so it is here in verse 6, Isaiah tells us that as God's people rebuild their cities, as they do the work of redemption God has placed and planted them to do, They effectively become, Isaiah says, living priests, ministers of our God. Not people with seminary degrees, perhaps, right? Not people ordained in an official capacity, but priests and ministers of God's redemption all the same. They're working it out, sowing it into God's creation. The message that Jesus proclaims there in that synagogue in Nazareth right, is, is the beginning, Luke says. It's the beginning of this proclamation of good news, redemptive power, the Lord's favor working itself out. But as the Apostle Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 15, the full power, the full culminating force of, of our ability to be and live as redeemed people comes later in Jesus' ministry. It comes through his death and then is sealed and made final in his resurrection power. I want to show you just a few verses here at the end of 1 Corinthians 15 in closing this morning. Paul writes in this incredible chapter, right, this whole chapter about the resurrection. He says, For as in Adam all die, So in Christ, all will be made alive. You can see that reversal language. Genesis and Jesus. Verse 23, but each in turn, Christ the firstfruits. Then when he comes, those who belong to him. We are attached to the reign and the redemptive power of Jesus. And then moving on to the the very end of this this whole chapter about resurrection and the kind of bodies we will have and the the hope and the certainty of what what Jesus has done, Paul concludes these thoughts in verses 56 through 58. He says, The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. Because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. The last question I want us to to think about this morning a question that I think many of us ask and, and see in the work we do is, is that sinking feeling that what if all the energy I'm spending, all the things I'm doing day to day, what, what about when all this disappears, when all the work I do is undone? Right? We're faced with 
the reality that whatever we build in this life will eventually wear out. Whoever you train in your workplace will someday retire. Whatever you plant in your garden this this summer will need planting again. And if you're like me, right, sometimes you want to know, well, does the work I do matter ultimately? Will it last? I think the way Paul endeavors to answer that question here in 1 Corinthians is to point us to this fact that we worship a risen Jesus. The reason that that work can be good, the reason that our work can be redemptive, the reason that our work can last comes down to what he describes in verses 22 and 23. We know what happens under the curse of Adam. We know the the brokenness and, and the heaviness of that. But Paul says, if our lives have been joined to Jesus. Once Jesus' spirit fills us, then he begins to make everything in us come alive. That is his promise. Our sure and certain hope, Paul says, is that death does not win. It's that the cursed curse doesn't last. Paul says, praise be to God. He gives us the victory Jesus Christ has won. And what I find fascinating is, is we're probably most often tempted to read 1 Corinthians 15 and think about the future hope, right? That, that one day we will be raised. One day we will, we will be like Christ, the first fruits. And, and there is that, that promise of, of things made full, things made new, things made perfect. But notice how Paul concludes his thoughts in verse 58. Therefore, Therefore, because of the resurrection power of Jesus, because of what he has done over sin and death, therefore, give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. Stand firm in it. Be established in that good work. Because you know, Paul says, that whatever work you do in the Lord, whatever you do Whatever you put your hands to because the Spirit of Christ is living and moving and prompting you to do it. Paul says it is not in vain. It will have eternal, it will have enduring, it will have lasting significance. And of course how the Lord works that out, how he pulls that together is a mystery to us in this age. But the Lord has promised it will be so. I want to leave you with one last snapshot. This is an image taken from the mind of J.R.R. Tolkien. For decades, around the time of World War II, Tolkien labored to write what eventually became the Lord of the Rings trilogy. But it, it literally took him decades. And apparently Tolkien, for much of that time, was plagued with this sense of a failure, this sense of of a fear that he would never finish the work that he had worked so long at, that it would never come together and be complete. And it was during that time that he wrote one of only a handful of his short stories. And it's a story called Leaf by Niggle. I encourage you, if you can find it, it's, it's worth reading. It's about 20, 25 pages long. But in the story, Tolkien describes a man named Niggle, And he describes Niggle as a painter. Not a very successful one, but the sort of painter 
who could paint leaves better than the trees themselves. And Niggles' life was consumed with a vision, with a desire to paint one particular picture. And it was a picture of this splendid tree that he had imagined, that he had seen in his mind's eye. He describes it as a tree with innumerable branches thrusting out the most magnificent roots. And a tree with strange birds that came and settled on its twigs. The story says that painting this picture became all-consuming for Niggle. And he, he set out every morning to work on this grand masterpiece. But over and over his work gets interrupted by other demands. And he has to tend his garden for the war effort. He has to take care of a sick neighbor who lives next door. He has to repair a leaky roof. And so he's he's always rushing to do these things and then to come back to the work that he has to paint. And he does this over and over for years until one day, quite suddenly, we're told that Niggle is sent on a long journey. It's the journey from this life into the next. And there's, there's a whole lot more to the story than that. But Tolkien says, in, in this long journey, the, the journey into another world, Niggle one day finally arrives at this most beautiful place, this, this stretching vista of countryside. And he says that the views there are, are breathtaking and magnificent, but they're also somehow familiar to him. And as he he steps off a train that delivers him there, and there's a bike, the the bike that he rode back in his village, parked. And he gets on the bike, and he begins to, to cycle through the hills of that countryside. Until suddenly, as he's cycling, he looks up, and he is so startled, he falls off his bike. And Tolkien says, there before him stood the tree. His tree finished. And he gazed up at this tree. And he saw that that every detail as he had imagined it, whether he was able to finish it or not in his life, it was was perfect. It was consummated. It It was full in every respect. And as he looked up at the tree, he lifted his arms, he opened them wide, and he said, it is a gift. Niggle knew in that moment that God had given him a gift. That God had caused the work of his hands to be made new. To be made complete. To be established and everlasting. It was a gift because our God is, is a redeeming and renewing and restoring God. And so as you go into the work that this week holds for you, May we all go with that sense, knowing that the the work we give ourselves to in the Lord, He will make complete. He will establish. We can go with great assurance because Jesus has claimed us with His resurrection and His redemption power. And so our labor is never in vain. We pray for us in that work. Jesus, we thank you that in you, the curse of Adam, the curse of sin and death, 
is undone. Lord, in you, the power of resurrection life is unfurled. It is planted and sown deep into who we are. Lord, would you cause us to stand firm in that hope? Would you cause the power of your redemption to go deep into us so that the curse, as far as it may be found, may be broken open with your joy and your life? Lord, establish us in your hands. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.